welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Of uh, being involved in, in prison service work. And uh, the reading I'd like to read is from the AA Big Book. Uh, on page 102, it says, your job now is to be at the place where you may be of maximum helpfulness to others. So never hesitate to go anywhere if you can be helpful. You should not hesitate to visit the most sordid spot on earth on such an errand. Keep on the firing line of life with these motives and God will keep you unharmed. And with that, I'd like to introduce Jack from Oakland. Hi, I'm uh, Jack from Oakland, a greatly, gratefully recovering sexaholic. And uh, is this a great meeting or what? The only qualification to be a speaker here is to have to have been in jail. Uh, I'm embarrassed by the things that qualify me to uh, talk sometimes. Uh, I'm going to talk today about uh, some of my experiences um, around jail and uh, what it was like being a, a sexaholic in that uh, environment. Um, I don't know how many of you have ever graced the insides of a jail, but it's not a pleasant place to be. I don't know if you've been in prison, but it's worse to be in prison than it is to be in jail. Uh, the uh, fears that go with it are large, and many of them are well justified and warranted. Uh, May, there may be some of you who are skirting on the edges of uh, behavior that can lead you there. Uh, I'm not quite sure who I'm addressing today, um, but hopefully um, every one of us uh, can take something away from this in terms of uh, the hope that uh, we all have. Um, I'm going to break this into about uh, three parts. First, I'm going to tell you a little bit of my history. Uh, some of you have already heard my story, so I'll try to keep that uh, short. Uh, then I want to spend a fair amount of time talking about uh, events leading up to jail, uh, the jail experience and coming out. And then I want to talk just a little bit about where I am uh, today and uh, share some of the hope that I feel. Uh, there is hope. Uh, I know there's hope. I live the hope. Uh, the fact that I'm standing here uh, signifies that there's hope. A um, little bit about uh, before we get started, though, with, uh, Maybe you could uh, help me and we could uh, join in the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. I will, not mine, be done. Thank you. Uh, a little history. Um, I'm going to tell you things that I now know. Uh, when I was 52 years old and I was arrested, I didn't, hadn't pieced all of this together. 
um, but I'll make it as short as I can. I was raised in a family with two um, very, 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 very alcoholic parents. Uh, my mother was uh, almost certainly psychotic, and my father may very well have been as well. For a decade, I was subjected to uh, incest, sexual molestation of every kind imaginable from uh, both parents, a grandparent, and some of their friends. Um, that experience did not prepare me for life. Um, I came out of it unable to trust anybody uh, with an acute distrust of God. It's interesting, I don't think I ever felt of myself as a, being an atheist, but um, I certainly believed if there was a God, couldn't possibly have cared about me, or these things could never have happened, and must have been on my parents' side, uh, to give them the power to do those kinds of things. And uh, maybe worst of all, uh, and children do this all the time when they're subjected to that kind of abuse, um, I took on responsibility for everything. I came out of it believing everything that happened to me was my fault, it never would have happened to me if, uh, unless I'd done terrible, terrible things. But I must have deserved it. And I had not only whatever guilt and shame I deserve, but I carried the guilt and shame of those who perpetrated these things. And to make a long story short, I was a mess. Um, I began uh, sexually acting out when I was seven years old, is the earliest I can remember, uh, against my sister. Um, it um, got worse by stages, some acting out in junior high school, more in high school, more still in college. Um, I got married after college, thought that would solve my problems, didn't, it just exacerbated them. Uh, it increased in severity and variety uh, through my 30s and into my 40s. By the time I got into my late 40s and my early 50s, I was devoting probably the equivalent of several hours a day to fantasy, uh, some form or another of acting out, including compulsive, compulsive masturbation. And I had completely lost, absolutely, totally, completely lost any ability to uh, manage my behavior. In earlier years, I could sort of manage. Uh, by this time, I could not manage at all. Um, I knew I was sick. I'd been in therapy for a decade, but I wasn't able to even come close to dealing with any of my problems. I, we had a meeting on honesty today. I was the paragon of dishonesty in my uh, therapeutic relationship. Um, I couldn't bring myself to talk about the truth about me and my history and what I was really doing. There was just too much pain and too much shame. Um, I uh, acted out, uh, I suppose, in large part out of uh, pain and fear and just I didn't know anything else to do. Uh, that was one way in my life that I could get comfort. The particular symptoms that I was arrested for were had to do with being a peeping Tom, but that was just one of a number of symptoms. Uh, I did just about everything over the years that uh, anybody might do in the sexual arena. And uh, none of it ever fulfilled, none of it ever satisfied. It always uh, produced uh, greater guilt, greater shame, and the spiral downward just continued. Long story short, August 26, 1995, I was apprehended uh, in some uh, peeping conduct. Neighbor threw me to the ground. Um, I uh, passed out, which is something I learned how to do as a child. When things got too bad, I would just escape that way. I did that. They didn't knock me out. I just passed out. And when I awoke, I was literally lying in a gutter uh, in what the police call a stable scene. Uh, they were standing over me, and the 
cars were all around, lights flashing, and I went off to jail. Um, I had a moment of clarity then that I've never had in my life. The clarity was, um, I need help. I desperately need help. I cannot begin to deal with this. And it was interesting. It wasn't a, a fear response. It was, um, I just need help. And I spent roughly a week looking for help, calling all over the country, trying to find programs. Through a miracle, um, a lawyer who wanted to get me out of town uh, and into a safe environment paired up with a psychiatrist who I had actually seen when I was a youth, and he, he remembered me, and he connected me with a program uh, down in the L.A. area. Uh, they uh, literally spirited me out of town. This was, I was in, the, in Northern California at the time. And uh, stuck me in a uh, locked psych ward for 10 days. Uh, while they observed me, took sexual history, uh, tried to establish whether I was going to commit suicide or not. Um, I think that I entered my first essay program about a week after I left that uh, psych ward. And I know Matt was there. Um, I don't remember if Gary and Steve were there. There may have been others uh, who are here who were there. But if you want to get a first-hand account of what a guy who is a total, complete wreck and blittering uh, mess looks like, talk to them, because uh, that's the way I was when I entered the program. I was a lost soul. Um, an amazing event happened in my life right in that same time. They released me out of the locked psych ward into a residential care facility. The residential care facility uh, was housed by a um, wonderful African-American woman who three days after I was there uh, brought me to God uh, and I took Jesus Christ as my Savior. I have to say it as it is because everything that you hear has to be filtered through that experience because I'm not sure I had the typical jail experience. Uh, what I'm sharing begins really with uh, that. Um, the reason I was down in L.A. in this residential care facility was to commence a very, very long and protracted and very extensive and in-depth and intensive uh, psych program that involved trying to figure out who I was, where I came from. I had repassed everything that happened to me as a child. I was not about to remember any of that. And in fact, I had promised myself I would never remember any of that. Well, these people I was working with helped unlock all of that, and that's an ongoing process. It's still terrifying to me, but God is gracious, and God gives me insights weekly that help me continue to make progress. The program is the place where I get to act out whatever the progress is. That's where I learn how really to do the behavior. So it's just an absolutely integral part of my life at this point. Um, in the time that I was in that uh, care facility, I knew I was in trouble. I'd been arrested. Uh, they uh, arrested me on multiple charges. And I had lots of people around me telling me, you're not going to go to jail. Um, you're a lawyer. You're a college professor. You've been a paragon of your community. No way you're ever going to go to jail. And I would just look them in the eye and say, you don't know. I'm, I know I'm going to jail. I had to go to jail. Um, I broken the law in uh, serious ways, and um, political and other pressures being what they would be, there was no way a judge could be lenient without risking uh, his position. But more basically, um, what I did justified going to jail. I'd had a couple of scrapes with the law before when I was younger, 
had uh, gotten my wrist slapped, sort of, uh, and had come to sort of believe that you get away with this kind of stuff. Um, that wasn't going to happen this time, and I just knew it in my heart. Well, that was important because um, I wasn't sitting there for the four and a half months that I had before sentencing and going to jail, uh, pondering whether or not I was going to go to jail. I was blessed with the sure knowledge that I was going to go to jail. And uh, that leads me to the first of several key words I want to share with you uh, about my experience. And I think it has to do with our... Uh, strengthen our hope as we continue to grow in this program and learn that there is a better way and that there truly is hope. Uh, the first word is preparation. I read the vision for you just about daily, trying to understand what that would mean to me going into a jail environment. I wasn't going to go to state prison. It was pretty well assured my conduct had been misdemeanor. It wasn't something they could put me in prison for, but I was going to serve a jail term. Um, the only question was going to be how long and where. Um, so the vision for you became sort of the, the starting point for me on everything. Um, I connected with the church. I had two pastors who were well aware of everything I'd done in my whole story. Their, the entire congregation unfolded me. I had two uh, spiritual disciples who, or mentors who discipled me aggressively, and I had the program. The combination of all of those resources allowed me to create a framework for myself. And the basic framework was that I was going to go with two more keywords in mind. Uh, one keyword was gratitude, and the other keyword um, was uh, service. Um, that's what I got out of the vision for you, that if I could learn to be grateful for what God was now doing in my life, and all of the tools that he was beginning to surface that were beginning to show me that I could tackle things that I never thought I could ever tackle. And if I could be turn that gratitude into service, something good might come of my uh, jail experience. Um, I would be lying if I told you I wasn't frightened. I was terribly frightened. Um, I don't care whether you're going to jail or prison. Sexual offenders do not fare well in those environments. There's a peculiar code among uh, prisoners. You can rob and steal and beat people up, uh, but if you're a sexual pervert, which is what I was, um, you're uh, subject to um, getting uh, prisoner retribution, prisoner punishment. And I was well aware of this. I did a lot of reading. I'm an uh, ardent reader, uh, compulsive preparer, I probably over-prepared for this whole thing, but um, I had my eyes wide open. But I did go ultimately with a heart that was prepared not to sit and mope, not to sit and sulk, not to um, make it a waste of time. I figured uh, God had given me this incredible gift of uh, coming to know him in my rudimentary ways, and I just I needed to respond to that, uh, and I was going into an environment where I knew that there'd be opportunities for service, and I knew there'd be um, plenty of opportunities for gratitude. Um, I was sentenced uh, in uh, January of 1996 and uh, reported for jail on February 3rd, 1996. Amazing how you can remember some of these dates. Huh? Uh, 
think I wouldn't want to remember those, but some things just sort of get indelibly uh, impressed. Um, I wasn't prepared for entry to jail. I was prepared for sort of overall what the experience might be, but I wasn't prepared for entry. They brought me in, processed me, walked me across the street, marched me through the doors, took me to the module I was going to be staying in, and uh, put me in a cell and closed the door. Where's the orientation I'm going? Uh, hey, you know, I'm a human being. Uh, Tell me something about this. What's expected of me? What am I supposed to do? Where do I get my meals? Uh, how do I get a towel? None of that. Just, boom, you're in a cell. And um, as I walked into the cell, uh, I couldn't have been there more than 20 seconds before there was a parade of um, guys who were released from their cells, their cells for service kinds of things that they did, who began coming by the door. And each of them had a, a different version of it, but every one of them let me know that they knew who I was and they knew what I was there for. Um, that struck a note of terror that I don't know if I can describe it to you, but it was very real. I hadn't yet been able to really observe my cellmate. He was asleep in a bunk, and all I could see was a very large mass. Um, and he appeared to be African-American, but it was dark in the cell, and I couldn't really tell. Um, I didn't have anything to do. I, I knew absolutely nothing about what was going on or what expected or what the routines were, so I just sat in a chair and prayed. And in 45 minutes or so, the guy woke up, and he was an immense man. Um, he had biceps about this big around <laughs> and uh, legs to go with him. And clearly, if he had grabbed my neck and squeezed, he would have pinched my head off. It was. Uh, that's the kind of thinking that you, you, you go through when you're in terror. Um, I had, in my reading, discovered that uh, there's quite a bit of uh, care not to mix uh, racially prison populations. It works best if uh, African Americans sell with African Americans, whites with whites. It's a terrible thing that they've gotten into, at least in that jail, but uh, that's the way they did it. And apparently that goes on in a number of other jails and prisons. So I just didn't know what to expect. Well, as the guy lifted up out of the bed, suddenly I saw that there was a Bible under his pillow. And I looked at that, and I looked at him, and I thought, this is a, this is a real moment of truth. Um, he's going to say something to me. I'm going to have to say something to him. It better be something that's in truth. So he introduced himself, gave me his name, asked me who I was. I told him. He didn't ask me what I was there for, but with all the activity out in the halls, I was very sensitive to the notion that if he didn't know who I was and he walked out there, um, he might be surprised and it might not go well. So I told him who I was and why I was there. I figured if he didn't know, he was going to know in a few minutes. He uh, looked at me, uh, said, you're okay, you can live in my house, and proceeded to go out and uh, make it okay with the other prisoners on the module. That was God's hand. That's God's grace in my life. And as we mark those bits of grace, that's where our hope comes from. Each of us experienced it in different ways and in different environments. But I'm learning something about erecting markers to those kinds of events so that I don't forget the things that I have to be grateful for. Well, my next little bit was uh, mealtime. 
Uh, turns out they delivered meals into the module. You don't go off to a dining hall or anything. They, this was a maximum security prison. Uh, they didn't want prisoners milling around in any way. They didn't want the job of uh, supervising them. They just uh, uh, brought the meals in. And it turned out there were certain places you were allowed to sit and certain places you weren't. Guess where I went? I went where you're not supposed to sit, over near a TV. Well, that's a no-no. You can be subjected to lockdown for uh, a day or two or three or five or even kicked off that module, which was a trustee module, uh, for being at the television during mealtime. Not quite sure why that's the rule in that jail, but it was. Um, an African-American man uh, broke a taboo. Uh, he left his group, came over to me, and said very, very quietly, you shouldn't be sitting here. You should move. Um, again, I just thank God um, he didn't have to do that. Well, later on I discovered that he was part of a very, very small group of men who were involved in uh, Bible study and fellowship and trying to make something out of the prison experience. And he had uh, reached me out of uh, God's love uh, and had freely shared that with me. And it just really confirmed uh, everything that I had sort of thought about. If you're going to go to this place, you're going to be a prisoner. Uh, better do it. Be the best prisoner you know how to be. Um, that's all you're allowed to be right now. I, I was a lawyer before I walked in. Nobody's going to let me be a lawyer. <laughs> I was a university professor before I walked in. Nobody's going to allow me to be a professor. Uh, so I, I better accept what I was and, and be a prisoner and be as good at it as I possibly could. Um, that brings me back to um, a couple of the, the key words, uh, service I mentioned. I told you that the Lord prepared me with a heart of uh, attuned toward being of service. I was astounded um, at the opportunities for service that arose daily, minute by minute, in that environment. So many people in so much need with such horrible, horrible life stories most of them with very, very little hope because they didn't have the resources available to them that I had available to me. And it wasn't that I could be of service in changing somebody's life in any major way, but the least I could do was to help a little bit in a moment. So I, uh, I worked in the kitchen and I found myself whistling while I was at work. I just, and I would sing hymns and praise songs. And, um, after a while, our kitchen became a really happy and fun place to be. Uh, we were really good at what we did. We took a lot of pride in what we did. We served the meals as well as we possibly could. Uh, we kept the place spick and span. And doesn't sound like much, but when you're a prisoner, the opportunity to work is a total blessing. The days and the, the minutes and the weeks and the hours go by very, very slowly if you don't have something productive to do. Work is a real privilege, something that I learned in that environment. I'd always taken work for granted. That's just something you do. I'd really never accepted that it is something I should be grateful for and something that truly is a privilege. I really came to uh, understand that. And the kitchen, it turned out, was a wonderful place to have uh, fairly intimate uh, conversations about things. You could go off in the corner and talk about anything and everything. Um, so it turned into a rich place for communications. And I remember one guy, uh, he was from a really, really, really tough uh, neighborhood in Richmond, an African-American man who had a lot of history of violence. 
who cornered me one day and wanted to tell me about his case. He knew I'd been a lawyer, wanted me to get some jailhouse lawyering. Told me a story. When he was all done, I asked him a bunch of questions. And then he asked me what I thought. And I said, do you really want me to tell you? And he said, yeah, I really want to, I really want to know. I said, are you sure you want me to tell you? And he said, yeah, I really want to know. And I said, well, you're cooked. Uh, and I, you know, I, I don't know how to say it any other way, but um, the story that you've told just doesn't hold up. Um, it's uh, not going to fly. Uh, and here are the reasons why. And also, as I listen to you and I watch you and I see your body language, I can tell you that you're not committed to this story. Um, he broke down. He began to cry. And when he gathered himself together, he put his arm around my shoulder and he said, Professor, that's what they called me on the module, Professor. <laughs> he said, uh, Professor, you're good for us guys here. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, nobody tells us like it is. We have all kinds of fantasies. We believe we can get away with this, that, and the next thing. Nobody will just tell it to us straight. Thank you for telling it straight. I just went, whoa, this is beyond me. I don't understand how these things work. Um, I just tell you that story because it's, it's just something that happened, and I didn't think of it, but somehow God was working in me to just try to be straight with people and just share with people and give them as much as I could while I was there. Um, the other uh, two things that I wanted to comment on about the jail experience were fellowship and uh, Bible study and working the steps. In the particular jail that I was in, it was very, very difficult to work the steps. Um, they didn't have an SA meeting. Uh, they did call for an AA meeting about once a month, and they did call for a CA meeting about once a month, but nobody ever went to any of the meetings. And I talked uh, several times with guys who clearly had problems with sexualism about forming an essay meeting. And they would share things in Bible study, but they would not go to a meeting. And I was talking with Pat over lunch. I think some of that has to do with you just don't want to admit in that environment who you are and what you've done and what your struggles are. That's a place where you have to be strong, and you can't let people know that uh, you've got weaknesses. Uh, or if you do, you better be very careful about who you let know. So I guess in retrospect, it's not terribly uh, surprising that uh, we didn't get a thriving SA meeting going. But we did get a thriving Bible fellowship meeting going. And the recidivism statistics, if you examine jail and prison populations, differ for those who uh, participate in Bible study fellowship and uh, begin to develop a relationship for God with God uh, than those who don't. Uh, recidivism is much, much lower for people who become involved and their hearts uh, begin to be changed uh, by God. Um, when I first got on the module, there were three or four of us who met two or three times a week. Uh, when I left the module, there were 30 of us who were meeting regularly six nights a week. It was the highlight of each of our days. It was a place where we could um, try to work in our very humble ways, in our very rudimentary ways, on developing a relationship with God. None of us really knew what that meant. I was uh, a born-again Christian, but I didn't know what that meant. I was five months into this uh, journey with the Lord. Um, it, we were there to help each other, and we made one rule. We're not going to let denominational differences interfere with just reading the Bible, studying it, and sharing what's going on in our lives, and learning to apply what we learn in our lives. 
And um, we basically used sort of a 12-step model for what we were doing. I had some influence on that. Um, but we differentiated um, feelings and thoughts and uh, actions. And we were very aggressive about it. And we held each other accountable. And we tried to uh, grow programs for each of us where we could make some forward steps while we were in that environment. Um, that was not without some difficulty. Uh, the guards on the module had different ideas about whether this was a good idea. Some of them supported it, others didn't. Um, there were a couple of times where we went a couple of weeks without any meetings because nobody would allow us to get together. Uh, but by and large, it, it was supported. Um, what I did to work the steps was uh, there were copies of uh, the big book available in the library at the jail. And one of the privileges of working in the kitchen was when you went out and delivered food, they let you stop in the library and pick up a book so long as you signed it out and returned it under the rules. Uh, so I could go and browse and find what was there and uh, uh, get access to uh, reading materials. And I found a AA guy there who uh, agreed to sponsor me through my time that I was in jail. He was going to be there for a long time. He was uh, there on murder charges. And uh, his case was working its way very slowly through uh, the courts. He had committed the murder. He'd done it in a blind alcoholic rage. Um, he was struggling mightily in his life. Uh, he was all I could find. It wasn't necessarily an appropriate sponsor. But he rose to the occasion. He was incredible. Um, he'd had a lot of sobriety and pastimes in his life. He'd worked steps and worked the program for years and years, but he'd still had a horrifying uh, thing happen to him. Um, it was certainly a blessing for me. I suspect it was a blessing for him to have that opportunity to provide sponsorship. I'd worked through the fifth step before I went into jail. I finished working the steps the first time while I was in jail. Um, and there was lots of time to do that. I had time to, uh, to really work on it and lots of time even to start on the process of making amends, writing letters, making phone calls. And if people came to visit me and there were a number of visitors, I could uh, begin the process of making amends with those who would come and visit. Um, as I look back on this, um, it was not a horrible experience. It was, in fact, a rich and rewarding experience. I needed to be separated from the rest of the world. I needed a time and place to work on things I needed to work on. And I needed to be taught lessons in humility that um, come very slowly to me. I'm uh, not somebody to whom humility comes easily. Um, I want to tell you just a little bit more about the jail experience, and then I want to go to an ending to this. Um, I was released out of jail into a halfway house back down in the L.A. area. And a very wise judge who sentenced me sentenced me to six months of jail, which would be a little more than four months served time, a year of halfway house, which would be a little uh, less than a little more than nine months served time, and uh, a year of uh, home detention, which uh, that's a pretty stiff uh, sentence for a misdemeanor kind of conduct. But in his mind, it was a progressive discipline thing, start with the worst, mediated a little bit, mediated a little more, introduced me back into society slowly. I've come to really respect the wisdom of what he did. Um, I needed not a short separation, but a long separation. Uh, but he did an absolutely wonderful thing in the way that he structured the halfway house part of it. He allowed me to leave the area, which almost never happens, 
um, allowed me to be in a halfway house that had access both to the Pasadena meeting, which was my home meeting and where my heart was, and to a church that I'd found in Pasadena while I was there where the pastors and the whole congregation were willing to surround me with love. Um, I was in that environment until October, or excuse me, November of uh, 96. Um, I was released from jail in June in the halfway house until uh, Thanksgiving night, or the day after Thanksgiving, excuse me, um, in 96. Uh, the morning of the day after Thanksgiving, I was at a uh, workplace where I was allowed to work out of the halfway house. The owner of the company came in and told me that my uh, son had been killed the night before in a horrible automobile accident. That um, was something I survived um, in for the first two months or so, maintaining my sobriety, trying to come to grips with what it was. A, a courageous uh, man who led, who ran the uh, halfway house just took it upon himself to allow me to go home back to Northern California and be with my family. A courageous judge uh, modified the uh, sentence so that I could enter home detention early and stay with my family. The district attorney, who was very strident about my case, uh, figured that uh, I could be there through the memorial service and then I'd better be sent back out of the area and back to that halfway house because that's where I belonged. And the judge uh, chose to do it differently. Um, I lost my uh, sobriety uh, in February or March of 97. I'd reached a point after the death of my son where I went into depression and despair that I just I didn't care about anything. I didn't go do any of the illegal acting out. I didn't do anything that would violate my probation, but I did Internet stuff, and I got magazines, and I uh, uh, went back to uh, masturbating and uh, trying to do anything to uh, comfort the pain, and I couldn't do it. It didn't work. Along about uh, April or May, I finally began to be so sick and tired of all of that, and uh, God began to open me up again in ways that um, I started to get active in the uh, in the program again, and uh, I've had sobriety since uh, May of '97. Uh, uh, that's a that's a gift of God. Um, but one of the things that my son's death taught me is that life goes on when you're in jail. Uh, people come and go, people live and die, and the horror for people in jail is that they're separated from it. You can't respond. You can't participate. Being incarcerated by itself isn't so bad. It's the, the separation from the ones you love, the ones you care about, and the daily events. And it, there, I know there are a number of you who are active in the SACC program and reaching out to people in prisons. There is no greater gift any of you can give than to reach out to those who are suffering in those kinds of environments and understand how desperate life can feel when you're there and you're separated from the events that just tear you apart. Um, it's, uh, if there's one thought, I guess I'd like to leave you with that. Being incarcerated by itself isn't so bad. It's the, the separation from the ones you love, the ones you care about, and the daily events. And it, there, I know there are a number of you who are active in the SACC program and reaching out to people in prisons. There is no greater gift any of you can give than to reach out to those who are suffering in those kinds of environments and understand how desperate life can feel when you're there and you're separated from the events that just tear you apart. Um, 
it's uh, if there's one thought, I guess I'd like to leave you with that. Um, where am I today? I said there's hope, and where I've just finished makes it sound like despair. Um, the grieving process when you lose a child, I'm sure some of you have lost children, uh, is very difficult. Everyone experiences it differently. It takes a long time. I think I'm making progress in that, but you notice when I mentioned my son, I almost lost it. Um, still very close to the surface. Um, but God has taught me that that is part of life and that um, he's in control and I'm not and that um, I don't have to have answers to all the whys. I just need to uh, maintain his presence in my life. I want to tell you a story that happened uh, this last week that will tell you where I am and I think it tells everything that there is for me to tell. Um, Monday uh, last week my wife uh, went up to the wine country with one of her very good friends. We have a daughter who's away at college now. It's the two of us at home. We're empty nesters. And um, she and a good friend wanted to go get a, three days away. We're going to be up. They left uh, Monday evening, and we're going to get back uh, Thursday evening. In my old life, um, what I would have done is I would have taken every minute available to me and gone and acted out. And I probably wouldn't have done it in one way. I probably would have done it in six ways. And I wouldn't have taken a few hours. I would have taken uh, 24 hours a day probably. I was that sick and that, that hopeless. So as my wife was preparing to leave, um, I thought about it. And I thought about all of the great and wonderful things that I used to do and how much fun they were. And the thought came just rushing to me. Well, now's the time. Go do that. Who's ever going to know? It would be a great and wonderful thing for you to do. Treat yourself. Um, you haven't had any fun for years. You've uh, survived your son's death. Um, go get him. Well, thank God um, that voice didn't prevail. Uh, Monday night, I stayed home, did the work that I needed to do, took care of things I needed to do, made some phone calls. Uh, to uh, people in the program and uh, not only survived the night by myself but actually uh, got through it just fine. Uh, Tuesday night, uh, same thoughts, but um, God just kept me there and um, an amazing thing happened. At 9 o'clock that night, my daughter called from college in a world of hurt over some things that had happened in her life, some of them real, some of them imagined, but when you're 18, life is very real and very earnest and filled with angst, and she, def she needed somebody to talk with. So we talked for an hour and a half, and from a father who had disgraced his family and created horrors for a daughter who was just entering high school when I was arrested, I can't tell you the blessing that this conversation was to have her trusting enough that she could. Share things that are truly intimate and um, look to her dad for some help. And I got down on my knees afterward and I just said, praise God, the, uh, my old self. I wouldn't have been there. I would have said So where am I? Um, I'm in process of learning 
about this hope. God has done incredible things in my life in the last month. The thing with my daughter is kind of a culminating event over what's been four months of God really showing me all the things I have to be grateful for. Um, I'm grateful for having gone to jail. I'm grateful for having been in a halfway house. I'm grateful for having been on home detention. I've learned all kinds of stuff that none of us really would want to know, but it puts me in a place where I can be of help to many others uh, from a, a shared experience basis. And I can see the tangible signs of God's grace in my life and the growth, and I can feel that hope building. It um, One of the things that I talk about with uh, people in our group in Oakland and with uh, uh, people in the program when we get together to talk is uh, the need to share the wondrous acts of God in our lives. One of the most precious things we can share with each other are the real reason for our hope the little day-to-day things that aren't necessarily victories, but just signs of uh, God's grace in our lives. Thanks for letting me share. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.